from the bleachers this is a podcast from dick and mick and this is season three episode number two so we're back for week two here on our uh, podcast relaunch so mick i think this weekend would have been um today would have been the first days for the elite eight right so winners say we go into the final four so we thought it'd be a good time to maybe talk about some ncaa tournament memories and things that we have about the tournament i think this would be the weekend final four teams would win if i remember yeah correctly. saturday and sunday would have been regional finals if we were playing the tournament and then yeah next week would have been the final four so i know you know in the month of march that's probably the one thing that everyone looks forward to obviously the final four would have been next weekend which would be april but the last week of march and then the first week in april always final four opening day of baseball so we talked it over during the course of the week and said you know what why don't we just talk about some final four memories i think everybody out there probably has final four memories next so we'll just kind of walk through some of our favorite ones we'll talk a little syracuse final four and just talk a little bit of tournament today yeah so i think a good place to start maybe for you know uh you know, guys and gals who are younger listeners, um, just a little bit about the NCAA tournament and, you know, how it started and, you know, where it's come. It, ha- it wasn't always the format it was now. The first NCAA tournament was 1939. They had eight teams. It was actually, it wasn't started by the NCAA. It was started by a coaches association called the National Association of Basketball Coaches. And basically Midwestern college coaches got together and thought that the East was too dominant and everything was about Eastern basketball and they wanted a way to open up and have a tournament for everybody because NIT was the national championship at that time. And until about the mid-1950s, the winner of the NIT was the national champion. So this tournament started in 1939 with eight teams. You know, and the reason why we have regions east-west, I don't know, I I think it's midwest and southeast now, but in the old days it was east-west, midwest, and south, is because you had to play in your region. So like UCLA would always win the west, and you know, they won 10 in a row because no one out in the West was any good and they would always you know get to that championship game and until 1985 Mick is when they went to 64 teams so the tournament you know the way we see it now you know it's 68 but in for a recent memory it's a 64 tournament team it wasn't really always that way and it was a it's a kind of an interesting road that the tournament went on but it did start as a uh, a coach's clinic and then turn into a tournament and the funny thing when I used to talk to Al Mar you know his buddies he coached against you know the older guys now a guy like uh, Stan Evans and uh, Tom Murphy over at Hamilton they used to belong to the NABC and they would get two tickets as members and they'd go out to the final four in the in the 80s and 90s and have tickets because they were members now obviously that doesn't happen anymore but it's an interesting uh, tournament how it all started and actually 1950 uh, CCNY was the only team to win both the NIT and the NCA in the same year but the NCA hasn't really been big Mick um only started probably you know late 70s early 80s the tournament that we know and love really started yeah that probably started and we had this conversation before we actually started recording the podcast today Nick you know my first recollection I kind of remember a couple tournaments in the mid 70s I remember Indiana went in in 76 kind of having had my eye on that a little bit probably the first tournament that I actually kind of watched with a little bit of interest would have been probably 78 and it's actually probably when I became somewhat of a Syracuse fan kind of became knowledgeable that Syracuse was playing um, Syracuse lost in the first round of that it, that year in 78 and then kind of ha- hopped on the Notre Dame 
Dame on the Notre Dame train as they actually got to the Final Four in 78. And that's probably my first recollection of watching the NCAA tournament myself. And during those years, 75, 75, 76, 77, and 78, Nick, the tournament was at 32 teams at that point in time. So you had obviously eight teams in the East, eight teams, I think they actually called it the yeah, the Midwest, the West, um, and the South. So there was eight teams in each. And, and you said it best with UCLA, Nick. Back in those days, for the most part, teams didn't travel. So you pretty much stayed in your, there weren't as many at-large berths and you pretty much stayed geographic to where you were, you know, and that did open the door for UCLA, especially in the seventies, late sixties, early seventies, you know, not a lot of competition out in the West, you know, so they were able to get to the final four a whole bunch of times and win a whole bunch of titles. But I think for myself, I think 78 was the first, you know, that was the first year I actually watched the tournament. And then 79 is bird and magic. And then, you know, that's really where the tournament took off. I, without really, Without research, and I think 79 may still be the most watched college basketball game in the history of college basketball. Yeah, and to go back to UCLA, you know, maybe I'll do a little bit of John Wood bashing here if, if uh, my fans or our listeners don't mind. But really, you know, you know, he's figured as, you know, the god of basketball, but he had a huge advantage because um, he could get kids from L.A. to come to UCLA, and um, there was really not that much competition out there. The ACC at that time was loaded, but you had to win your conference tournament to get to the NCAA tournament so only one team from the ACC could go and then he got Kareem to come out and Kareem was a New York City kid and how did a New York City kid end up all the way out in Los Angeles and if anybody has any time look up a name Sam Gilbert that's all I'm going to say about you know squeaky clean John Wooden and the things that happen you know every coach was doing what you know UCLA was doing but sometimes you know I hear people talk about John Wooden like he was you know holier than thou but there was some cheating going on and there was some paying some players going on you know, at that time as well. And basically, he let the Sam Gilbert guy, he told him, do whatever you want. Don't tell me what you're doing. And he kind of turned the other way. And, you know, he got a lot of kids you know, to come to UCLA. But for me, you know, 79, I think, is the mark of the tournament, you know, as people would see it now. But for me, that I was only seven years old at the time. And then. So for me, it kind of came in that magical year of 83. And actually in 83, there was 52 teams. So it's kind of weird. In 78, there were 32 teams. And then in 79, they went to 40. In 1980, they went to 48 teams. In 83, 52. In 1984, 53. And then in 1985, they went to 64. And actually, remember a couple years ago, they had talked about maybe going one step further and going 128 teams. But for me, that that first year was 1983. I actually remember watching the 1982 championship that was Georgetown in North Carolina when Jordan hit the shot and for some reason I was a huge, I wasn't a Georgetown fan but I really wanted Georgetown to win because I think that was the Big East was just started rolling and, and I was a huge Syracuse fan and I wanted to see the Big East do well and I probably hated North Carolina. And, you know, Dean Smith, another genius who had Michael Jordan in one corner and Sam Perkins in another corner and James Worthy, another corner, um, stalling all the time. So unreal how the game is different than it was then. But my that's my first recollection is early 80s for the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and going back to my, just going back to 79 for one second, because, you know, that was really probably my grand awakening would have been 
you know, the bird magic showdown in 79. And if you keep in mind and just kind of think about it for a second, if you go back to 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, you know, through those, through those years, actually uh, the 82 game, like you said, North Carolina and Georgetown, that was actually played in the Superdome. But if you look at some of those final games right around those late 70s and early 80s, those, those games were played in relatively small arenas. So you're talking about, uh, you know, the Michigan State, Indiana State, that, you know, that was played in Salt Lake City. So in a really, in a relatively small arena, you're talking about maybe 19, 18, 19,000. So just from a, from an attendance standpoint, you know, these NCAA tournament games, especially the Final Fours, they were played in really, really small places. I think in 80, you know, they played Market Square Arena in Indianapolis. You know, obviously uh, Hoosier Dome didn't exist then, but those, you know, those games were played in really just small, small places. In 79, it's crazy 79, just one more note on the 79 game. I was a huge Magic Johnson fan. I was so on Michigan State going into that game. I was not, I was not in the Larry Bird corner whatsoever. Uh, just rooted all over the place for, you know, Magic Johnson and Greg Keltzer who played on that team. Uh, you know, and then it would change a year later when uh, Magic got drafted by the Lakers and Bird went to the Celtics and I was a huge Celtics fan. So it it, it changed in one year. But yeah, the, it, you know, on that 82 team, like you said, Nick, I was actually, you know, I was... Uh, Pretty big college basketball fan by 82. And Michael Jordan, even before he hit the shot, I know a lot of people will, you know, they'll probably question this, but I was actually on the Michael Jordan train even before uh, he hit the shot to win in 82. They were on NBC TV all the time. ACC was on NBC TV all the time. So you were... You know, if you watch, you got a glimpse of Jordan before he hit the breakout jump shot in 82. And then I think, you know, 1983, that uh, miracle by NC State, I think that game was in uh, New Mexico State or was it uh, in Albuquerque? Yeah, in it was the, in uh, Albuquerque. Because I remember yeah. it was, they had trouble, I think, Hakeem Olajuwon or someone talked about how they had trouble breathing or how to get used to the mile-high air. But I think 1983 price stands out for me because the East Regionals were at the Dome. The Dome was a pretty new facility at the time, and we went out for those games. We sat all the way at the top row, right under the scoreboard. I remember we, just, we sat right at half court, but we were at the very top of the Dome. And I remember watching the game at my buddy's house. Syracuse was playing Ohio State, and if Syracuse won, they'd be going to the Dome for the Regionals, and they lost, I think it was like a four or five point game. Leo Routens was on that team for Syracuse. But here's how college basketball is different. In the Dome was St. John's. Chris Mullen played for him, NBA star. Um, Georgia, uh, Vern Fleming, NBA star. North Carolina had Jordan Perkins and Brad Doherty, all NBA stars. Ohio State, Granville Waiters. Remember him? And uh, you don't get guys to stick around and have you know stars of that caliber play anymore. So we got to watch. You know, I got to see Chris Mullins, Vern Fleming, Michael Jordan, Sam Perkins. You know, all play. You know, in one weekend. And being from outside the Albany area, Sam Perkins was kind of a hero of ours because he played his high school at Shaker High. So he was a known commodity in the Capital District at that time. So that going to that East Regional at the Dome really probably started my, you know, love for basketball. And then it was just kind of a perfect storm because that's exactly when the Big East started to become, you know, popular. And, you know, going into my high school years, you had, you know, NCAA tournament getting rolling, 64 teams. The Big East was turning into a powerhouse. ESPN had all these games on. It was 
kind of a perfect place to be as a new basketball fan, you know, in those mid late 80s. And it was, I don't know, it feels much better time of the quality of basketball and just the stars you got to see on an, you know, an, an everyday basis. You get to see, you know, Patrick Ewing play three, four, you know, NCAA tournaments. And unfortunately, you know, a Carmelo gets to play one, you know, and I think it's great for the, for those guys can go to NBA and make money, but just as strictly as a fan, it's kind of a different game that you get these, all these one and done guys. But that 1983 East Regional, I have a lot of great memories about, you know, that, and I was kind of my love for basketball started right there. Yeah. And actually you mentioned, it's funny you mentioned that Nick, because I actually didn't go to the semifinal games, but we actually went to the regional final. So the regional final ended up being uh, Georgia and North Carolina. So you're thinking, you know, obviously you mentioned it, you know, they North Carolina was loaded with that team with Perkins, Jordan, uh, Matt Doherty. That team was absolutely loaded, and Georgia beat them. Brad Doherty, too. Yeah, and Georgia, and Georgia ended up beating them and going to the Final Four, and that's the obviously the memorable run that Jim Valvano made with NC State. So interesting note about the NC State games that year. So we're talking, you know, we're, we're talking 83. So that year when NC State's making the run, CBS, we used to show the first – CBS would show a first round game on Thursday night, but it would be at 11.30. They'd show the Western. They'd show a game from the West. They would show a first round game from Friday night uh, at 11.30. And I remember staying up and watching. Uh, NC State was out. They got shipped out West in that in that tournament in 83. And I remember watching I remember watching them play Pepperdine. I think it was in the first round at 11.30 on CBS. Those were the only tournament games that were shown on Thursday, Friday in the early 80s. Now we know that obviously the tournament saturated with TV. You watch every single game of the tournament on TV on three or four or five stations now. But back in the day, the 83 tournament, like I said, I waited until 1130, turned that game on in my in my bedroom, watched NC State Pepperdine. So you would get to watch two games on Thursday. You get to watch one game Thursday night. You get to watch one game on Friday night. And then you know, you'd watch, you know, tournament games on Saturday, Sunday, but it was only on one station to be on CBS. And then in the, by the mid eighties, ESPN w- eventually picked up the first round games. They showed them in their entirety, but they did it on a 24 hour like cycle. So some of those games, the games wouldn't be live. You would be able to watch them, but they would be taped, but they would show them on a 24 hour cycle during Thursday and Friday, which was a lot different than, than what we have now. So it's kind of interesting as far as TV, how, you know, TV kind of dealt with the whole NCAA tournament because you know obviously if you're you know if you're if you're young now you're used to seeing every single game every single game you want to see you know and and that's not how it was done you know er, in the early 80s so you know as a fan in the early 80s you really had to search around to try to find the tournament. Oh, I remember bringing my radio to school to listen to the Big East tournament in the library or something and I remember ESPN had all the games and then CBS got the tournament back and they didn't show all the games for a few years and eventually they TBS and TN started to pick up games and they spread the wealth out but there was a time where you would you know you won't be able to it's crazy to sound now you won't be able to watch your your favorite team and since we're both big SU fans and um I think I remember Rick I think we saw Dean Smith's last game as a regional final in, yeah, uh, in Syracuse when he was he lost to Louisville I think I, I can't I think I'm not I'm not sure what year that was but we you know it kind of brings North Carolina full circle there but we're um big Syracuse fans so we wanted to touch on Syracuse and you know their NCAA tournament history and 
there's a couple ways I want to go, Mick. Maybe a little bit later we can talk about, you know, your favorite final or your favorite run Syracuse made in the tournament. Maybe it's the same as besides, obviously, the national championship. But, you know, there was a time when Jim Beheim was considered a choker and a loser and he couldn't get... Uh, a team, you know, to the final four. And I was looking today at, you know, why it was that. So 86, they lost the Navy in the second round. Then I remember that game where they lost to Rhode Island in 88 in the second round. Then 1991, which is probably the biggest heartbreak. Well, not the biggest. Uh, the shot against Indiana is maybe the biggest. But 1991, when they lost in the first round to Richmond, and they were the two seed. Then the next year, in 92, they lost to UMass in the second round. So from 86 to 92, too. They had a whole bunch of really bad losses, but they had that final four, you know, final game run um, mixed in there, which, you know, they easily could have won if Keith Smart didn't hit that shot. But the, the word always was that Beheim couldn't win the big one, couldn't bring a team, you know, to the final four. And for a while there, there was the heat on Beheim. You know, it's crazy to think now, but there's times you, you weren't sure, you know, if Beheim was going to lose his job or, or, you know, be in that position uh, for that long. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, the 87 run was pretty, you know, obviously they got to the finals that year, but you're right about that, Nick. The uh, the road to 87 was actually pretty, it was it was pretty tough because... 87, they go Georgia Southern, they won by six, and then they played uh, Western Kentucky, blew out, but then the Sweet 16, Sweet 16 game, they beat Florida. I think Dwayne Shinsis was on that team, and I had listened to that one on the radio. And then Elite 8 game, they played J.R. Reed, North Carolina, one by four. And then in the Final Four, they had Rick Pitino, Providence, who Syracuse kind of mopped up and then lost by one to Indiana in the national title game. Because I know the biggest, like, I think one thing that people don't realize is I was looking, they were actually in 80 they were a number one seed so i'm just gonna go i'm just gonna get back into the early 80s so in 80 they were a number one seed in the east and they beat villanova in their first round game and then they lost to iowa uh iowa actually got to the final four actually lou olson was coaching that iowa team nick that got to the final four and then 83 we already talked about already had them penciled in to come back to the 80 uh 81 and 82 they actually went to the nit got to the finals i think in 81 NIT. So they missed the tournament in 81, 82, 83. Marty Head. I remember yeah. Marty Head and they lost to Tulsa in New York City. Yeah, they lost to Tulsa. And I think it was like triple overtime game or something. And then 83, we had them penciled in as, you know, coming to the Dome for the regional. I mean, you couldn't have, you couldn't have had it set up any better than that. Actually went into the tournament as the sixth seed in the East in 83 and they lost to Granville Waiters in Ohio State. And then 84, lost to Virginia. They were a three seed. That was an upset. And then then 85, they lost to Georgia Tech, which they were a seventh seed. But I think the 86 team, I think if you're talking about one of the biggest disappointments, I think the 86 team uh, losing the Navy, that game they lost in the Dome, that was a crushing loss. That was as a fan. So I'm, you know, I'm a senior that year. So I'm well aware, you know, young adult, well aware, bleeding Syracuse orange. And that loss was crushing, crushing, crushing loss. And I was a big Pearl guy. I To this day, my favorite player ever in a Syracuse basketball uniform. I'm going to I'm going to bypass Carmelo, which is crazy, but I was already a Pearl I was a Pearl guy through and through. You know, that was the end of Pearl's junior year. They lose to Navy and, you know, I think the pretty David Robinson. Yeah, and I, pretty much the handwriting was on the wall that he was probably going to leave. So, when they lost in 86, I was crushed. That was a crushing loss. You know, you're thinking, "Oh, god, Pearl's out. Pearl's going to be out the door." And uh, you know, you're thinking, "Geez, this is the end of the world." You know, you don't know if, you know, when they're 
you know, because you figure in 86, they had a legit shot to win the whole thing. And you just don't know when that's going to come around again. And then 87, Nick, Sherman Douglas shows up. I, well, he was there in 86, but 87, Sherman Douglas was off the charts. Yeah. And I would say if I had to pick my favorite Syracuse basketball player it was Sherman Douglas, because I remember him as a freshman. He wanted to go to Georgetown and Georgetown didn't want him. And he came and going to back up Pearl and just, you know, him and Stevie Thompson throwing those lobs. It was that was, you know, my my youth. And actually, you know, we can talk about how Beheim kind of turned his, you know, the his career around actually recently last 15 years how he went from being a choker to being the underdog who can get teams to the final four but that 1989 run that Syracuse made you know mixed in between you know losing to Rhode Island and losing to Richmond so that team had Douglas Thompson Coleman Owens Daryl Johnson so they they beat Bucknell they beat uh, Colorado State then they beat Missouri and Illinois and I think Coleman got hurt and had a hurt back and Illinois was the number one seed and uh, Syracuse is the number two seed. And for me, that 1989 run was a lot of fun to watch. I, I looked it up today. When the Syracuse played Missouri, Syracuse had six NBA players. Missouri had four. And then when they played Illinois, Illinois had five NBA players. And, you know, I like it's a different game than it was, you know, than it is now. But that run they made in 89, they played those. They lost to Illinois out in, uh, it was in Minnesota in their, their dome, the uh, Metro Dome. Because I remember my brother and one of his buddies, when they played college, Colorado State, they said if Syracuse wins, they're driving out. So they hopped in the car and they drove out to Minnesota and watched those games in the Metrodome. And that's I, I that's kind of Syracuse was really good. And then, you know, the next year they lost to Minnesota as a number two seed. And then in 91, they were the two seed and lost to Richmond, which was just a devastating loss. But that 1989 run they made was a lot of fun to watch. And you now they lost to a, you know, a team that had Kendall Gill, it had Marcus Liberty. They had Nick Anderson who played for the Magic when the Magic had Shaq and uh, Penny Hardaway. And it's uh, that team was really good. And, you know, I thought that was a team that could have won. I, I believe if I remember Coleman had like a back injury in that Illinois game. It wasn't 100%. Yeah, and, the, and the worst thing is about that game, and that was an Easter Sunday game. Watch that at home. Worst thing about that game is the Cuse dominated that probably for roughly 30 minutes. I, you know, they had a eight point halftime lead. I was actually looking at this yesterday, had an eight point halftime lead that lo- their, their lead ballooned up to 15. And that was like, you're thinking with like 15 minutes left, that's in the back pocket. They're going to the final four. It's probably what that team is probably the team that no, that's probably the one that got away. That team, like you said, Nick, that team was really good. Billy Owens, really, he was really, you talk, you're talking Sherman, Billy Owens, Stevie Thompson. Stevie Thompson's probably my top five of all time Syracuse basketball players. That team was absolutely loaded uh that team was better than the 87 team in my opinion to be honest with you I mean you got you're putting you know that's Sherman on a, Sherman as a senior that's Coleman as a junior Billy Owens as a sophomore but you know they uh that's the that's that Illinois game you know I was disappointed when Pearl lost to Navy and then the Illinois game in the Elite Eight that was the one that got away that team should have won the whole thing uh you know I believe Michigan won it that year they beat Seton Hall so you know if Syracuse gets in you know Syracuse would have played Michigan in the semis so you I mean could have been staring down a little Syracuse Seton Hall and then the 89 finals which would have been really interesting little Bayheim and PJ uh Carly Small in the finals that would have been really interesting but that yeah that 89 team that team was loaded and then 90 and 91 and then 91 they you know 90 that team could have won it as well and then 91 losing to Richmond that was pretty big low point I was in, living in 
I was at East Stralsburg and all my buddies were non-Syracuse fans. So that was not a good loss in the whole scheme of things. Pretty upsetting. And then they go on and, and then it goes to, you know, when the 2000s come around, they make a little bit of run and they lose in the Sweet 16 to Michigan State. And that game was in uh, Auburn Hills, I believe. They lost to Michigan State, who went on to win a national title. And then they lost to Kansas the next year. Then they go on in 2003 and get their national championship you know, run. And like we were saying, I can't still figure out, you know, they played in Boston, then they played in Albany. Why I wasn't at those games in Albany. But uh, me and Mick went out and we watched the, the final game in the Dome. So we watched it on, they had a big screen in the middle of the basketball court and we got to watch the final game in the Dome. We always kid around. On the way home that night, it was like a, it was like a blizzard on the way home from, and then we got the Boonville. It was perfect out, but it was, we couldn't get out of Syracuse. And they had, it was crazy. They had like all the poles were greased because people were climbing the poles. And it's really, I think it's the start of the, maybe the second half of Bayheim's career where he goes from being a guy who can't win a big game to all of a sudden from 2003. And if you look forward from 2003, what he's done, it's kind of unreal how he's you now turned, he's taken a program which doesn't really get, you know, highly recruited guys. You know, he does, but he's not, they're not Duke, they're not North Carolina, they're not Kansas. And he's really made some serious runs in the tournament, you know, over those last, you know, 15, 20 years. Yeah, I was just looking at it. So since 2000, since 2003, count, we're going to count 2003, Syracuse is 28 and 12 in the tournament. Uh, and I know, you know, it's been some relatively tough times last couple of years, regular season wise. But I mean, final four and 13, final four and 16, you know, totally unexpected. You know, and the other thing too is I was just kind of glancing through this as well. Bayheim's first year in the NCAA tournament, I believe was in 76. So if you go from 76 to 87, so 87 was his first team that got to the final four. From 76 to 87, there was not one tournament where Syracuse actually won more than one game. So it was usually one and done for the Qs in Bayheim's first 11 years of his coaching career, you know, and then obviously, you know, gets to the finals, you know, in 87 and kind of turned things around. And then then, you know, his most talented teams, probably 80, those teams in 89 and 90 were really talented. But then, you know, like you said, Nick, in 2003, and then it just, co- just to go back in 96, you know, they get to the final game and they lost to a Kentucky team that probably had like nine NBA players on it. And they were in that game with five minutes left. Syracuse had John Wallace, who's a, a borderline NBA player who got drafted first round, yeah. but he wasn't an NBA star by any means. You know, and so, you know, usually, you know, traditionally, Beheim has done his best work. His best work's always been done when expectations have been lower, uh, you know, and that's, you know, that's basically, you know, been true for most of his career. But I mean, times have been tough since, you know, since um, Tyler Ennis left in two, at the end of 2014. So Syracuse has, since 2014, they've gone to three tournaments and they have not, you know, their highest seed in those three tournaments is has been a number eight seed, so it's been a struggle since they've gone ACC. And you could, and part of the reason you could say is they went on probation, right, in 2015, and that's when they they lost all those scholarships. And actually, the next year he made that run. I was watching that game against Virginia last night, where they went to the Final Four in 2016. So you know they lost a whole bunch of scholarships. They gave up a, a year's tournament, and you know then going to the ACC. And then this year, you know, unless they won the ACC tournament, they wouldn't have wouldn't have made the, the NCAA's. 
but if you look from 2000, from the championship, he had a couple first round exits. They lost to Vermont in that awful game. They played Vermont and then they lost to Texas A&M the next year as a 5-12 seed. But then, you know, they make, they go Sweet 16, Swiss, Sweet 16, and round of 32. Then they go Elite 8, Final 4. They make it to the second day. Then they go Final 4 again in 16, make it to Sweet 16 in, in 18. And, you know, he's he's just done a marvelous job over that, that stretch from after the tournament. And it's funny, you know, you think of all the stars who played at Syracuse. There's only one guy, I think, who's played in two Final Fours, and that was uh, Cooney, who played 2013 and 2016. So uh, it's a, it was, I was watching that Virginia game last night, and he played. And, it, you know, you think in it, in that range right there, you know, you go back to 2010, um, we went out and watched them play Gonzaga, and uh, they were number one seed out in Buffalo. And their center, Anawaku, got hurt, and, you know, everybody says they're probably a Final Four team there. And then 2012, they're at Elite Eight, and they lost their center. Fat Mel didn't play. So I would say one of those two, you're going to hit another Final Four there. They lost to Ohio State in the Elite Eight game, and basically they got pounded on the glass by a Sutherland guy. And with Fab around, you know, who knows? And maybe, you know, go back and looking at history, you might as well just have played Fab because you went on probation anyway. And what was going to be the difference? They were going to, you had to, you had to vacate anyway. But I mean, they, they were really good those years. And when Anawaku got hurt, and that uh, just killed that team in 2010. Yeah, either one of those teams, 10 and 12. Yeah, you're talking about one of those probably getting to the Final Four, most certainly the game against Ohio State in the Elite Eight. Um, but if you look at it too, like if you look at their 13, their 2013 run, they took down number one seed Indiana. Uh, go back to 2016 game you watched last night, Nick, they took down number one seed Virginia, you know, so the years that they've gotten it done recently, you know, they've had to go through, you know, they've they've gone through the gauntlet to beat, you know, to get to some of those teams. I know in 2016, they did miss, they did miss Michigan State, uh, who would have been a two seed, so they would have had to go through Michigan State and Virginia in that bracket, but, you know, for the most part, you know, they've done some, you know, pretty good business against you know, number one seeds in, in the NCAA tournament. And, you know, just kind of look at, at it through the years, you know, as far as Syracuse being a number one seed in a region, uh, done it twice, 2010 and 2012, those those two years that we feel like one of those could have been a Final Four trip. And then in 1980, there were one seed. So in the Bayheim era, they've been a number one seed in a region in the tournament three times, which you almost think it would kind of be more with their tournament success, but it's not. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, and if you go back and look, Syracuse, Syracuse, I believe, is maybe sixth, seventh in all-time wins as um, Beheim has, you know, put this program on the map. And, and it concerns me, Mick, when Beheim goes, you know, for me, it's it's not a given that they stay on top. They could turn into, you know, a UCLA. You know, they, they won a national title. I'd have to look what year they won it. Um, 1995. But they have really been relevant, you know, s- since 1995. And there's a real chance for me when Beheim goes that the program could, you know, turn into a, a struggling ACC team, which they kind of are right now, and maybe turn into a bottom bottom half ACC team. You know, look at Connecticut when Jim Calhoun left. You know, he made that program. You know, look at Seton Hall, what happened when Carlissimo left. You know, when Providence, when uh, Patino left. Look at St. John's when Carnesecca left. And, you know, obviously Villanova is the, the, uh, on the other side. They've gotten better. But I kind of worry what could happen to Syracuse. You know, people like to bang the drum that Bayheim's over the hill or it's time to get rid of him by I think people need to realize when he goes, you know, there's not 100% sure that they're going to stay where they are. As um, everybody loved Mike Hopkins, right? And Mike Hopkins was a guy. And Mike Hopkins is having trouble in a 
lesser conference, probably with better guys than Syracuse has, and it's not as easy as you know Bayheim maybe makes it look. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a fair point that you raise, Nick, because I watched a lot of Washington games this winter, and on paper you could make a very strong case that Hopkins's team was better than Syracuse's team. Isaiah Stewart, who's going to be first round NBA draft pick uh, at some point this coming summer, and he had a whole bunch of kids that were coming back and. They were picked to win the Pac-10 Pac and possibly get to the second weekend of the tournament. I mean, I, I you would have had to guess that their goals would have been to win the Pac-10, get to the second weekend of the tournament, and they finished last. And then they lost their first game in the conference tournament. You know, so yeah, the Mike Hopkins grass is greener. All you got to do is look out west, and that may be somewhat questionable. So, you know, obviously, you know, ACC ultra competitive. Syracuse still coming, you know, still kind of feeling the effects of probation. And the problem with probation is if you if you miss on a couple kids in and you don't have, you know, obviously you're going to have kids on scholarship. You're going to figure out that can't play at that level. But when you have less of those scholarships, you can't miss. And if you miss it all, you, you know, you're going to have a hard time. Not so much for Syracuse in depth. We we don't need to get into that conversation. It's not about the depth thing. But if you miss on a couple kids here or there, you know, with the lack of scholarships, you know, that could be problematic. And I think they've kind of, you know, they've run into that a little bit, you know, uh, you know, since going on in probation in 2015, even even though it's 2000, you know, we're at 2020 now, but does, you know, that still can have detrimental effects down the line. So, you know, moving forward, it will be interesting. And like you said, it's not easy. And to, to wrap up our conversation about SU basketball NCAA tournament. And my son was shocked when I told him this 2009, my son's favorite player was playing for Arizona state, James Harden and Syracuse bounced him out. So James Harden's last college game was NCAA tournament game and Syracuse knocked him out. And they were going to talk about how Harden was going to light it up and the zone gobbled up another superstar and Harden went on to the NBA after seeing that zone in 2009. So my son doesn't believe me. So I had to go out and show him the data that Syracuse took Harden out of the NCAA tournament. Mickey wanted to talk about maybe a couple of our favorite Final Fours, maybe non-Syracuse Final Fours. I got a couple in mind. I'm sure some of them we're going to hit on, but um, obviously 1985 and Villanova-Georgetown in the finals in that Final Four in the run that Villanova made is the reason that 83 with NC State and 85 with Villanova is probably the major reason why the NCAA tournament has turned into what it is. Everybody has a chance to win. You know, in, in college football, there's probably 10 teams that have a chance to win the, the title next year. In college basketball, there are maybe 30, 40 teams. Maybe that number is even getting bigger. But even in the 80s, there's 30, 40 teams who get on a run and win six games. You have a chance. And who would have thought, you know, Villanova, you know, that Georgetown team was just uh, a dominant team. And again, it's a different game. They packed the zone in. They, you know, ran, there was no shot clock, so they just ran a lot of clock. Then Villanova shot something like 86% from the field to win that game. But, you know, thinking back of some of my favorite Final Fours, obviously 1985 has to be at the top of the list. And just to piggyback on that, Nick, three Big East teams in that Final Four. So Villanova wins it over Georgetown in the finals. And St. John's got to that Final Four as well. So a little Walter Berry, Chris Mullen, talking about the golden age of the Big East, and we were talking about it in the copy room uh, a couple days before um, we went out of school. Coach McCall and I were talking about Memphis State. We were talking about Keith Lee, who was in that Final Four as well in 85. So, you know, that was, you know, obviously a very memorable Final Four. If you did, you know, back in the day, they didn't have win probability and all that, but if you took NC State in 83 and you had Villanova in 85 to win the NCAA tournament in a win probability, it probably would have been less than 5%, which is absolutely crazy. Uh, 
Um, you know, and then, you know, as far as one of my favorite Final Fours, I would have to say I'm I'm going back old school. I'm going back. I'm going to actually, I'm going to dial up a little 79 as well. Go back to Bird and Magic because some people forget, you know, that was the golden age of DePaul basketball with Ray Meyer. So DePaul, if you were, if you're 50 something or if you are maybe upper 40s, you remember those DePaul teams with Mark Aguirre. So DePaul got to that Final Four in 79. And then the crazy thing is about 79, Nick, uh, Pennsylvania from the Ivy League got to the Final Four that year. They came out of the East region, shocked everybody to get to that Final Four. They got absolutely throttled by uh, Magic Johnson in the semifinal game, but that is the last time an Ivy got to the Final Four. So that Final Four was actually, you know, really, really interesting. You know, so I, I'm kind of like old school. I really like those, the, the, the couple Final Fours in the late 70s. And then, you know, 1988, Kansas beats Oklahoma. That's another huge upset. Danny Manning brings Kansas all the way to the finals. Uh, you know, and that's really about the start of when Duke started getting it rolling. Duke starts getting it rolling in 86. Uh, so... I like, you know, 79 and I, I like that 88 Kansas Final Four. Uh, any any final f- any final four with Connecticut, I hate, though. I'll, I will admit that. I'm not going to mention any of that. More recently, uh, the year George Mason made their run, I think it was 06, they went to the final four. It was just kind of, I always, you know, you like room for the underdog. They were 11 seed and got to the final four. The interesting thing a lot of people don't talk about, Billy Donovan, 2006-2007. We're talking about, you know, this is 64-team tournament. They won back-to-back titles, which is really hard to do and people you know when you talk about great coaches in college basketball history you you would never mention Billy Donovan's name and you know that's something that uh, people forget that they won two in a row it's a football school and it's not really looked at as a basketball school that's just how hard it is to get to two final fours in a row and to win it twice in a row I think is a is an accomplishment that is a little bit underrated in the, in the annals of NCAA history. Oh, definitely underrated, especially, you know, in the time period, 06 and 07. I mean, he was able to do it because he was able to, he was able to keep some, you know, some players there that had played there for a while. So, uh, you know, Al Horford being one of those guys that played on those teams, but you know, it's not like Florida's getting a whole bunch of McDonald's All-Americans rolling in. So, you know, Duke's able to sustain it. They'll get five McDonald's All-Americans every year. So they're always on the doorstep, you know, Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, and though, you know, those schools are usually right there but yeah Florida Billy Donovan's 0607 that's you that's like vastly vastly underrated because winning two in a row in this day and age is absolutely you know kind of incredible and and like I said you know and the other thing too is if you look at it you know Connecticut if you go back to 2011 which is kind of amazing you know I hate to talk about Connecticut but I'm going to right now so Connecticut won it in 2011 in 2014 Villanova 2016 and 2018 so if you look at four of the last eight titles. I mean, those are old Big East schools, you know, winning four of those in the last eight years. You know, it's too bad that, you know, Big East is not the old Big East that we know, but, you know, they've, they've kind of, you know, they, Big East is, you know, the old Big East has done some work in the last, you know, eight years. And I was looking at some early polls today for next year, obviously highly speculative talking about next year stuff, but uh, a lot of people are picking Villanova to win it all next year. And um, yeah, it's just, and just to, to finish up like about Donovan, it's hard to, it's hard to fathom Villanova. 
Villanova's won three national titles. It is, especially it's a little <laughs> tiny school in Philadelphia. It's not like a, it's not a Michigan, it's not Ohio State, it's not a, you know, big. I mean, Syracuse is a relatively small school. It's just a little tiny Catholic school down there, and you know they, you know, what Jay Wright has done has just been unreal. But just maybe this can kind of wrap into what we we're talking about, Beheim. You know, people, you know, harp on Beheim and you know what he hasn't done. You know, there is only, and I gotta count them: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, sixteen coaches ever who've won more than one NCAA title. So, and some of those guys, Henry Iba is from the forties. So if you look at you know recent coaches who've had won more than one title, you're looking at Coach K, Bobby Knight, you know Denny Crumby going into the eighties, and Billy Donovan too. You know Dean Smith, Jay Wright's won a couple. The NCAA tournament is there's so much randomness. It's so hard. You know, if somebody hits a half court shot, it's so hard to be successful at that. You know, if Keith Smart misses a shot, you know Beheim has two, and he is a top you know three all time NCAA coach. And, you know, just winning one, I think, is a huge deal because there's just so much randomness involved in, you know, winning an NCAA title. You know, all the success Kansas has had, um, Bill Self only has one. All the success that Kentucky's had, Calipari only has one. So it's really hard to, to just get one. So for Donovan to get two is kind of unreal. So I just, you know, when people say, well, you know, Beheim needs to go, and the answer is he doesn't need to go. I'll, I always, this is the way I think of Beheim. He's not Coach K, but how many Coach Ks are there? One. So he's not Roy Williams. All right, he's not Bobby Knight. There's three of those guys ever. So you take those three guys out, he's the next best guy. So you have a top five coach all time, and, and people complain that he's, you know, got to leave. I, I dread the day he actually is going to leave. And there's been times where I disagreed with the way he's handled media and some of the stuff that he says, but just purely basketball, um, I'm going to dread the day that he goes. Yeah, and he knows it inside. Now, no, he, you know, he knows if you can get past not listening to him in press, you know, in press conferences. If you get past not listening to him in press conferences, if you can hear him, you know, talk with the national media sometimes, you know, maybe at the end of the tournament, maybe after they've gotten knocked out, maybe, uh, you know, when he's talking about other basketball teams around the country, you know, it's just it's astonishing how much he knows, how much he watches, and you know, and and just you know, it, it blows you away. You know, with the local media, obviously. You know, and and then you're grabbing him, and we know, you know, coaches know after a press conference or, or after a game, you got to answer questions. It's not always going to be, you know, it's not really high on the priority list. I know you got to, you know, tr- be a professional and this and that. Uh, but yeah, you know, you're right. It's you know, there's no easy solution when he decides to be done, and you know, you're kind of hearing the chirping a little bit now with you know a couple tough years. And I'm I, I'll never get off the bandwagon. You know, I'm never never getting off the bandwagon. But you also got to look at the nature of the beast. And you know, right now, a very tough conference. And you know, you're talking about 40 teams, 50 teams that can win it during the course of a year. Back in the first half of Bayheim's career, you're probably talking 10 teams or 15 teams that could win it. Now you're talking, you know, there's all kinds of teams that could possibly win it, you know, when you get into the tournament. So, you know, it's a roll of the dice, especially now, 68 teams, you know, so much parity. The parity's crazy. If you could see it this year, it was that tournament this year would have played out probably in real interesting fashion. You got teams you never heard of, like San Diego State, for the most part, probably going to get a number one seed. Dayton, number one seed. You know, that would have never had, that was that was not happening, you know, in the NCAA tournaments that I grew up with. You know, Dayton, who the heck is Dayton? Dayton would have been your 12th seed. Now Dayton's a one seed. 
So you're seeing some of these mid-majors all of a sudden, you know, more and more mid-majors are actually kind of pounding on the door and getting really high seeds, which, you know, you're kind of, we're probably entering into a new phase of the NCAA tournament where mid-majors were really, could be really successful in a given year. And now you're talking about mid-majors actually securing, you know, with all the, with all the analytics and things like that, mid-majors are going to be valued more. So now you have a Dayton who may get a one, San Diego State who may get a one, Creighton may get a one, you know, down the road. So the tournament, you know, changing as we speak, Nick. And, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're not sure what kind of Coach Beheim is, look at what that team looked like in December and then think how they were, you know, that last game they played in the ACC tournament, how much they improved. Same kids and how much better they have gotten. You know, I don't, I don't like the way sometimes he bangs on kids during press conferences and calls kids out in the media a lot. No, he did to Tyler Roberson a lot. And, I, you know, he, you know, if you get in his doghouse, it's a hard place to get out of. And sometimes he puts his foot in his mouth, you know, when he says some things about non-basketball stuff. But, you know, f- for what he's done on the court, it's uh, it's an amazing, amazing feat. And um, before we end this, this uh, podcast, I want to give everybody out there a trivia question they can ask going forward. Um, they want to go and uh, stump somebody, NCAA tournament trivia. Uh, the school with the longest drought not making it to an NCAA tournament. And you have to go back to 1959 when this team um, last made the tournament and that's Dartmouth. So if you're looking for, uh, you're out with your buddies one night and you're looking for a trivia question, who has the longest run not making the tournament? That would be Dartmouth out of the Ivy League as uh, they haven't made it since 1959. So put that one in your pocket for when we're back out one night and we can throw some trivia around at each other. That sounds good, Nick. And just a quick shout out to, you know, all the people right now during this crazy time period, you know, keeping the supply chains going. I know I wrote about it in my, I forgot my, I I forgot to write my article last week, Nick. I wrote it. I wrote, I wrote an explanation in my, I wrote an explanation in the column. I just, I flat out forgot. I I was doing schoolwork Monday morning and it's kind of, to a certain extent, it's just, obviously that's not where my thoughts were. So uh, I wrote about it this week in the column and, you know, uh, we've had a lot of, a lot of our students are in the healthcare profession. Um, it's one of the things that Adirondack always seems like we have a lot of students who kind of gravitate to the healthcare profession. I just want to give a shout out to all of those people. So may not be dealing with some of the other things that maybe New York City hospitals are dealing with right now. Uh, hopefully we can, you know, kind of things will stay quiet here, but I just wanted to give it a shout out to all those people, supply chain people, you know, Adirondack grads who are healthcare, you know, during the difficult time period. So, you know, just want to recognize you people not lost upon us. And I think yeah, that's... And, and like, it's amazing, you know, people who have to work in grocery stores or work at the cashiers at uh, Walgreens or, you know, Kinney's or something, you know, how we just take it for granted, you know, what they do. And they're really, they're going to work every day, not, you know, thinking that there's a, you know, a chance you're going to, you know, be able to pick up a virus or have exposure to a virus and as you get closer to New York City I would imagine that exposure gets greater and greater and there's a lot of high school kids doing that job or younger you know younger kids who you know are in those positions and it's I would say it would be hard to do that every day, and I, it's really impressive. I always make sure I say thank you to those people every day. When you know, I, I've been to the store just a couple times the last few weeks. I just want to say thank you to those people. You know, without them, you know, I went to Tops yesterday and was just the store was full, and people are there working, and they're going about their business very professionally, and it's much appreciated because we're being told to stay at home. Yet some people don't you know, have to go to work, so I'm able to go to Tops and you know get some groceries. So it's much appreciated what people at Tops and store 
stores like that are doing too. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to put a wrap on that, Nick. So season three, episode number two in the books, and we'll fire it up next weekend for another From the Bleachers podcast. All right, we'll see you. Have a good week.